Sometime during the week here, or the last week or two, I'm reading and reading different things. One of the things I ran across was an article by an archaeologist, a pretty well-known archaeologist in the Biblical Archaeology Review, and, and he was it was an interesting article, but in there he mentions, well, we, we know this because we have Jesus' family tomb in Jerusalem, and et cetera, et cetera. I thought, really? We do? How, how does he know that? Well, he doesn't have any proof for that, of course, at all. But he, he talked about that as if it was an assumed fact that Jesus lived and died and his family tomb is in Jerusalem. He's buried there and so forth. And what does history say? Well, historians will tell you, even the Jews of that day, even his enemies said, that that tomb was empty and they never did find a body. And why is that? There's no family tomb. You know, you can go to Muhammad's grave, although I know Muhammad never claimed to be God. There are many among Muslims who kind of elevate him to a semi-God status. But uh, you can go to his tomb and visit his tomb. You can find Buddha's tomb. But there's no tomb of Jesus Christ. So that got me thinking about why that would be and what that means. And, and, and then we're approaching uh, what, pe- what people call holidays about the birth of Christ, which is emphasized far more almost than it is in the Bible. And the Bible would be, called, it would be under the subject of an incarnation of Christ becoming flesh, which is in the Bible as far as what we call Christmas. There's no holiday called Christmas in the Bible. Um, in fact, Hanukkah is in the Bible in John 10, but not Christmas. Strange, isn't it, how that works? But uh, no, well, obviously the birth of Christ is in the Bible. But a holiday that we call Christmas is in the Bible. People really get excited about that. Perhaps there's a good reason to, but but there's other events in the life of Jesus Christ, other, a couple of other things that are often overlooked. Now, one of the things that's, that's overlooked is the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven. I know it may seem like an uh, arcane subject, esoteric and not very interesting, but I think it is interesting. And I, what's interesting to me about it is how important the Bible makes the ascension and yet how little importance is put upon the ascension in the thought processes of so many Christians. And um, we'll touch upon some of those today. I probably have way too many scriptures in this lesson. Uh, so we'll try to regulate that if I can while I go along. I used to just preach out of my Bible and have a few slides I'd slap on a projector or something like that. I could I usually just went with the flow, as it were. And then, figure, then at some point in time here, we got one of these projectors. Well, now we have a TV. We used to have a projector. And... James Jones says, well, what it's done is made your preaching more linear, he called it. That's an engineering word for you don't get off the subject quite as often, like I am right now, off the subject. Um, but what it does is, though, once I plug in 20 slides, good old Mike is going to have to keep punching those buttons and talk about all 20 slides. And, and that doesn't work as well as it should be because I, it's harder to, it is harder to modify while I'm going along without trying to look here and think about what I want to put in and out. It's harder to do that. So that's that's what happens. But anyway, we haven't even got off slide one yet. And it says, I'm not even going to tell you how many it says there are. Let's go to Acts chapter one with me. Let's go to the text. Let's go read the Bible. That's what you want to do anyway. And let's let's do that. Let's start off with a somewhat familiar passage to some, but probably not as familiar as many others. And that's one of the points I'm making this morning is that this aspect of Jesus' life or who he is is overlooked. And it's an extremely important one. 
Now, Luke starts off this account in the book of Acts. The former account I made, which is the book of Luke, he's talking about, O Theophilus, or lover of God, of all that Jesus began, we don't know if Theophilus was a person or just a generic term. It means God lover or lover of God. We don't know whether it's just talking about in a generic way, all you people that love God, or whether they're talking about a person. It also was the title of a Roman officials. Certain Roman officials went by the title of Theophilus. But anyway, we just don't know. But anyway, I, I made this account, he says, the book of Luke, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. So right there in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says this account is about everything that happened until he was taken up into heaven. That's the ascension. It doesn't say the word ascension there or sin, but that's the ascension. After through, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles, which he had chosen. So after his death, he gave commands to the apostles whom he had chosen, really, and before his death. Uh, and now then he was taken up into heaven. Who, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then you have an act, a little bit later in Acts chapter 1, or verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's, God promised he would send the Holy Spirit to you, and he said that's what you're going to wait for. Now then in verse 6 he says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time to the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall receive witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, that's the ascension, will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So there is the longest account of the ascension in the New Testament, and it's a very plainly an important thing as Luke is trying to make a historical account of the life of Christ, he, he takes up all these verses to explain, the beginning of the book of Acts, just how things got to where they were. That Jesus was no longer on the earth. Even after, even though he'd been raised from the dead, you know, a possibility was that he could have stayed on the earth after he was raised from the dead and, and worked miracles and went around teaching everywhere. That was a possibility. And he did that for 40 days. But then he was taken up into heaven. And that's why we don't have a tomb. That's why we don't have him here on the earth. That's why we don't have anything else, because he was taken up. So the ascension explains the present situation, not only that they found themselves in the New Testament, but explains what the position we find ourselves in. Mark puts it much more briefly, briefly in Mark 16. And so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now that's a statement that could only be made by the power of the Holy Spirit because Mark, Mark had no, no way to know that, that he sat down at the right hand of God unless the Holy Spirit told him that. But that's the key. That's a very key thing. We'll come back to that a little bit later in the sermon. This being seated at the right hand of God is a very important thing. And then you have Luke 24. Here's after Jesus' resurrection. He, he's been preaching it for 40 days. People have seen him. All these people have witnessed him. And then it takes, he talks about his disciples. He led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now that's his account of it. He was separated from them, carried into heaven. And these men saw this and they stood transfixed. They did not know what to think about this. And the men standing beside them said, he's coming back the same way. And he, well, what's what they're saying is, he told you what to do now. Go wait in Jerusalem. Yeah. Not like you don't know what to do now. Go back to Jerusalem and wait there because the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. And so we find the Holy Spirit falling in Acts chapter 2. We have some hints about this event when Jesus was alive. For example, in John chapter 6. He's saying so many things that are hard things for people to understand. They would be, they're the kind of things he was saying to them. Well, my nieces and nephews, you know, say these kind of things. I'll, I'll say something and my brother will say, that's just your Uncle Mike. Don't pay any attention. You know, that's just Uncle Mike. Crazy Uncle Mike. Don't pay any attention. That's what my, that's what my brothers kind of imply to the nieces and nephews. And I think my sons do the same thing, daughter-in-laws. Maybe Judy, and I don't know. She humors me a little more, so I stay with her. One, one reason, one, one little reason. Beside the promise that I made her when, we were, when she was 17. <laughs> but anyway, he made all these statements about himself and about God. And they just couldn't get their mind around what he was saying. And here's what, here's how he, Jesus doesn't do what modern people would do, what kind of calm them down. Now, you know, I didn't mean that really literally. I didn't really mean this or that. You admit, he didn't do that. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Well, what then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before? You think, what I'm saying to you is shocking about the bread of life. Where do you see me go up into heaven again, where I used to be? Okay, so they had, now they gave him something else to think about. You mean he really is saying that he's just going to ascend into heaven one day? or And he's saying he used to be there? You see, he threw everything into one statement to them. Well, this is what he was saying. Yes, that's what he was saying to them. And so now they really were scratching their heads if they had any doubt about what this meant. The good thing about these disciples of Jesus, though, even though at this point in time, by the time you get to the cross, the apostles as we know them, the disciples who were really not believing a lot of the things that they saw, that they, they didn't understand them. And by, I think by not believing, that means they didn't understand them. They didn't know how to process what it was. But they still stayed with him. They stayed with him because they knew he was saying something important, that he was doing something important, even though they didn't understand it. Most of us have been long gone, you know. We'd be back doing something else. But these men stayed with him. One of the best sermons I ever heard, I was a young man. Uh, had a, had, I was in Boca Raton, small, very small church in an upper room in Border Realtors building, preaching to a small group of people. And we had a man come, Harold Dowdy from Jacksonville. Uh, Stacy loves this man. He's passed away now, but she knows who I, him well. And he came down there. I was very, I'd only been preaching a year or two. And he did some sermons on Jesus. And they're some of the best things I ever heard. It brings me to tears thinking about the impact they had on me. The kind of man that he was. Am I wrong about this, Stacy? No, I'm not wrong about this. 
And uh, he, he was like me, an old gray-haired man. Only he had a big, deep voice and very dignified. I'm kind of, you know, goofy. But he, he was old like I am now. And he preached a sermon about the, Jesus and the apostles and recommended a book to me. And I got the book and read it. It was great. And he, he asked the question, why did Jesus pick the men that he picked? Why did he pick these men? So people give all these answers. Well, blah, blah, blah. He, he said, no, it's real simple. They're the only ones he could get. They're the only ones he could get. All the other people were way too smart, too sophisticated, too busy to follow him. But somehow these men were not too busy, too smart, too sophisticated. They just followed him. And that's what Jesus wants. Now I'm off the subject again. But he says to these men, so what if you should see him ascend to heaven? And I got some sermons I preached based on what he was saying there that day about, about this, that that uh, uh, if you can't believe those things about Jesus, it doesn't do you much good to believe anything else about him. Because that's what he told his original disciples. Now let's move on. In John 20, verse 14, that also happens to you when you get old, you cry more for some reason. I have no idea why. Now when he had said this, she turned, when he, she had said that, now here, maybe set the scene a little bit, he's, been raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene come to the garden. They can't find the body. She's just beside herself, distraught. The other people go away looking. She's standing there. And she asks the gardener, whoever it was, where, the, where have you put him? Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus, meaning for sure she didn't know who it really was. Jesus said to her, woman, what are you? why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, an affectionate word for teacher. But Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. She must have run over and tried to just grabbed him. You know, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. One of the first things, well, the first thing that Jesus said to anybody after his resurrection was that he was ascending to heaven. But we don't think this is important doctrine. That's what he told her. People wonder, what does it mean, don't touch me? He, he means don't grab hold of You can't hold me, Mary. I'm not staying. I'm not staying. I'm going away again. So don't cling to me. You need to go tell the disciples that I, I'm going to ascend back to heaven. And he told them this, but now it's going to come true. And so Mary does this. So this is one of the first things that he tries to make clear to his disciples after his resurrection, that he wasn't intending to stay on the earth. You know, if we had a relative that came back to life, we certainly would want the first thing they say to say, well, I'm leaving again soon. That'd be, a, you know, an heartbreaking thing to hear almost we wouldn't want to believe it that's what jesus did to them though because this this is important it's important that he goes away then he told them at the last supper i'm going away to prepare a place for you and so forth they heard this but it didn't really sink in what it might mean to them and so what we find then is that the ascension is the last element of the gospel it's the last piece of the gospel and sometimes therefore because of that it's overlooked it's part of what you have to believe to fully believe in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's doing, and what it's all about. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel in which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that which the word, the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. I mean, you can go talk to these people if you want to. But some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Now, what could that mean? Well, here's the thing. How was he seen by Paul? Did Paul run into him one day, walking around Jerusalem, runs into Jesus? No, this is some years later that Paul was converted. He saw him in heaven. He saw him coming in the clouds, as it were. He appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and all the, now the other people with him can't can't see Jesus. But he sees Jesus, he comes personally to the Apostle Paul and says, you're going to be uh, an apostle to me to the Gentiles. So when Paul refers to this idea of him seeing Jesus, he is really indirectly referencing the ascension that although it was years later, I saw Jesus Christ, this was after he descended back to heaven, and he appeared to me also, just like he appeared to them. And it was the same kind of an appearance in that case. The other thing about it, not only is the Ascension, the last element of the gospel, but the ascension uh, fulfills all these right-hand prophecies. There's a whole bunch of them in the Bible. I'll show you how many. Well, I only have really part of them here to show you. These prophecies about Jesus or the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I'm left-handed, so I'll probably do this, but I'll try to do the right hand. This is where a king sat on his throne and the one who is the heir or else is the co-region or whatever sits in his right hand. And so what the scriptures say about the Messiah and about Jesus is that he would be sitting at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God. Over and over again it says this. And that's what it means. But Jesus cannot sit at God's right hand if he's on the earth. You see, he has to be has, has to have ascended back to heaven. And so you have... Verses like this in, in Acts chapter 2. Here we read Acts chapter 1 about the ascension early on uh, in, 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 the, in Luke's writings here and the his, history of this. You go to Acts chapter 2, Peter now is preaching uh, after Jesus was raised from the dead. He's preaching this sermon to these people on this feast day of Pentecost. And he says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So we know King David. Uh, in fact, when I was in Jerusalem, we took, they took us to a place they called the tomb of King David. I don't know. That's what they said it was. And there was at this tomb, you go in there and there's this little room before you go into this area where this tomb is. And all of these rabbis are sitting there with their books and they come every day and they have their little places in this little room and they're reading their scrolls and so forth. It's kind of an interesting thing to see. And they were ignoring us as much as they possibly could, all of us tourists walking through. So we know he's dead, he's buried. Therefore, being a prophet, while he was alive, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. 
He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the dead. I don't think that came up. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he didn't stay in, in Hades, the realm of the dead. His flesh didn't decay. David's did. David's still there. His flesh is decayed. But he was speaking about someone who would come on to sit on his throne who was not decaying, who did not stay there. This is Jesus. Or this Jesus God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Here's what was happening. On that day, the Holy Spirit had fallen. These men were speaking in, in miraculous tongues to the crowd. Every man was hearing in his own language, which he was born, even though they knew these men were Galileans. And they were all wondering, and tongues of fire said on them, what's happening here? They kept, are they drunk? What's going on? And, jo- and, and Peter is explaining to them what's happened. What's happened here is that just like God said would happen, it wasn't David that he was talking about. It was David's son, Jesus Christ, that was going to come. That that Jesus Christ would not be left in hell, but he would be raised up and he'd be seated at the right hand of God and that he would pour out what you see in here. And he says that he is now doing this because he's been seated at the right hand of God. So when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead... And then was a, and then ascended up to the Father. There was a reason for that happening that way. It was so that that's where that's when Christ literally, as we'll see maybe in a moment, if we have time. He took his blood that he had shed, figuratively at least, figuratively maybe literally, back to the Father in heaven to sprinkle on the true mercy seat, the real place where sins can be forgiven for all mankind. And then he took his place, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling on David's throne. That's what this verse says. That's what Peter says happened. Now, that can't have happened if there's no resurrection. It certainly can happen if there's no ascension. So it doesn't use the word ascension here, but this is the event that it's talking about. These things cannot happen unless there has been an ascension. That's a big fulfillment of this right hand of God prophecy. And so it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is an important prophecy from the Old Testament. And David, it says, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the one that would come after him, his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Okay, that's who he's talking about. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So that is the promise that was given. This Lord and Jesus has been made to Christ. Part of that whole process is him ascending to heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. Now, what we also see is this is mentioned later on in the New Testament in many different occasions, a bunch of them. And it's often overlooked because, once again, we don't see the word ascension attached to it and we don't really have any kind of major holiday that celebrates this as such. It's not as cute as a little baby in a straw manger. I'm sorry to be cynical about that. So we don't get, and we don't get gifts for the ascension. So there you go. Am I being cynical? My wife's frowning at me. Okay, just a little. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and what? And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, 
Our salvation is not just about the resurrection, which we celebrate as people do at Easter time. It's not just even about the resurrection. The ascension is an essential part of our understanding about the importance of the resurrection. He was raised up, not to stay on earth, but raised up to ascend into the heavens, to be seated at God's right hand. And without that, even the resurrection doesn't mean it quite as much. It doesn't have the same power, because that's part of the purpose that it was. Christ is now seated in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to say in the book of Ephesians, I don't think I have it here, uh, this that, that we're seated in the heavenly places with him. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all him who fills all in all. So this is the significance of this ascension. And so you begin to see, here's a whole bunch of, I've got like three slides of this. Some of the other reference, we're not going to read all these. You know, he's at my right hand. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God. He, they, they saw uh, in Acts 7 when Stephen was, when Stephen was put to death, he, he was being stoned to death. He, he looked up into the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So the picture there is, he's seated, except when Stephen is being, is dying, it's like Christ gets up from his throne and looks down and sees Stephen being killed. That's what Stephen sees. He's standing at the right hand of God. Interesting. And we see in Romans 8 that this Christ has made intercession for us at the right hand of God. That's what's happening now. Christ's work is finished on earth. He said it's finished. But it's not finished entirely because right now he is working for us in heaven, as we'll see more hopefully in just a moment. In Colossians 3.1, if you then were raised up with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. He's not on the earth anymore. He's sitting at the right hand of God. So there's just, and then you see all these more Hebrews, you know, all these other references to these passages in the Old Testament and the New about the sacrifice of Christ being offered up and now him being seated at the right hand of God. And then you have, even in, in 1 Peter 3, he's gone into heaven who is at, and at the, is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So this is something that's easy to read over in the, in the Bible. It's easy to read over these passages about being seated at the right hand of God, not, not really think carefully about what that means for you and me today. And it's very significant. What advantage is there to being a Christian? Well, you can say you have your sins forgiven. You do. You can't really feel that so much as know that, and then you can feel it once you know it. But the other, but, but then again, what happens to us when we are Christians and we have our sins forgiven? You know what we do? We sin again. Just like in Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer was wanted to be saved and was baptized, but then he sinned again. Peter told him that maybe the thought of his heart would be forgiven, much less his actions. And what this passage tells us is we have a remedy. For, God provides you a blessing and a remedy even for that, that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for you. And, and when you pray to God, Christ is the one who intercedes for you today. When you're praying to God today, you're praying through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, pray through him. And he's sitting at God's right hand, making intercession for us as the one who is our brother, speaking to us on God's behalf. Speaking to God, I should say, on our behalf. And so this is a critical thing that happens to us. Also, the ascension was the return of heaven's triumphant prince, the one who had been there before as the son of God. Now he returns. He doesn't stay away. He comes back. Now, when he comes back, I will say, we've talked about this many times, 
Christ was different than when he left. God was a spirit, and Christ was a spirit before he went. But Psalm says, a body thou hast prepared me. So when he came into Mary's womb, and that miracle of incarnation, he was given a body as well as his spirit, just like we are, just like us. God does not like us in that he has a body in that same sense we do. We are a spirit housed in a body. And that, that was a critical change for the man now we call Jesus. I don't think that's ever changed. He didn't go back to being just a spirit. When you die, you won't be just a spirit. Especially in heaven, you will be a spirit with a body. You'll have a spiritual body, not a physical fleshly body. You'll have a spiritual body in heaven, but you're always going to have a body because that's the nature of human beings. We are spirits with bodies. Man used to be a treasurer of this church and friend to many. One of my best friends, Johnny Sprouse, died a few, two or three weeks ago over in Okeechobee. We went to his funeral yesterday over there. And he died from Alzheimer's. Very gentle, kind man. I, I never heard anybody ever say a bad word about Johnny. And that's what I told... I, said a couple words at the end for him. And I said, I saw this man. He and I traveled all around the United States showing poultry together, riding in the car for hours and hours and hours, dealing with dozens and dozens of people. Hundreds of people that I know know Johnny and love Johnny, ask about him to this very day. And I said, what I saw about Johnny is he was the same whether he was sitting in church there or whether he was off in a show hall dealing with some 4-H kid or somebody else. He was the same person. And that's something to be said about for that, right? Because not everybody's like that at all. But his wife had asked me before. He became very combative very, very late in his illness. Very, very combative, which is completely unlike him. And she, I, get, I don't know what she meant exactly. Well, is he like this now? Is this what he is? Is this, is this him? And I tried to tell her. I don't think she heard me well, but I tried to tell her, no, that's not him. That's just the physical body he had that he that he used to communicate with you and me, we knew him through, it's just failing. It just failed. Disintegrated. It's the it, it's like using machinery, a spirit controls the machinery, and the machinery breaks down and it doesn't work anymore. The person inside the inside there is still the same, but he can't come out. You can't see him, you don't know him, you see. What God promises us is a new kind of body that's not going to break down like that anymore in heaven. He doesn't say, oh, you're going to be no body at all. I find it funny. People talk about we're going to be flying around heaven as angels, but then they're going to say we're going to have all of our handicapped will be gone, but they act like we don't have any body. I, I don't, it doesn't fit together. They're not, they haven't thought this through carefully enough. But Jesus returned to heaven triumphing over not only physical death, but also spiritual death to save these creatures. Jesus did not come to the earth to save animals. He did not come to save angels. He came to save people, human beings. That's why the scriptures say he comes to give help to the seed of Abraham. This elevates us in the universe to a high position that we don't really possess because of our own nature. But because of Jesus' work, we have been elevated. He says far above all principalities and powers. Humans have been elevated. Those who are saved, you people, 
who love the Lord and, and dedicate your life to him and serve him and have been saved by him. You're his. He's elevated you far above all these other powers in the universe. How'd that happen? Because Jesus ascended into the heavens and sitting at the right hand of God. And he's just like you. The book of Hebrews says he's got flesh and blood just like you. He is flesh and blood, has a body. He's a sharer in that. That's been transformed. And there he sits at God's right hand. So no, your loved one dies from dementia or some other way. You, you don't have to fear that somehow they're lost in that and they're stuck in that condition. They've been exalted because of the power and the work of Jesus Christ. So this is the return of heaven's prince. And so it says in Ephesians 4, therefore he says when he ascended into the heavens on high, he led captivity captive. That's death. The captivity that we experience is death. And he gave gifts to men. He led, it, led death away and conquered death. And then he gave gifts to men through the Holy Spirit. He sent them, sent the Holy Spirit to us. And now, the, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Before Christ ascended into the heavens, he went down into the lower parts of the earth. That's the, that's the figure of speech for the realm of the dead. He went down to where Satan is with the realm of the dead. And he conquered death. He showed Satan right there in front of all the, the enemies of God. You can't keep me here. And you can't keep anybody. I don't want to be here, here. They're all coming out one day. But I'm going out first. And he left. He went out of Hades. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he went from the lowest parts of the earth down in the realm of Satan and death, destruction. He went all the way to the heavens to the right hand of God. So this is the return that he makes uh, for us. And then it says he gave him, he gave some to be apostles and some prophets, Ephesians chapter four, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal of all of those things happening. So, the ascension also marked the transition. Was the demarcation point? Last point. We're going to get this wrapped up here. Marked the transition from Christ's earthly work to His heavenly work through the church. I know that the Bible says when Jesus hung on the cross, it is finished. You have to define as everything else. What is it? I know Bill Clinton wanted to define what is is, but I'll define Jesus. You have to define what it is. It was his earthly work, okay, that was finished. The work he came to do the first time. doesn't mean everything he's ever going to do is finished altogether because he's still working on our behalf. And now he works from heaven through his hands on the, on the earth, that is the church. And I don't mean by the word church here, some ecclesiastical institution based in Rome or something like that. It's not some structure it's the people of God that God saved. The word church means the assembly. It's the group of people that God saved that he came to die for. And that's what does the work of Christ on earth. In John, in John 16, Jesus said before he even was put to death to his disciples, but because I have said these things to you, sorrows fill your heart. He told them, I'm going, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away. Now he called him in John 14 just before this that let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you many dwelling places. 
But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I will come again for you. So he's trying to comfort them. And he's saying, I'm going away. I'll come back and it'll be better than it was before. I tell people who struggle with the fact that their loved one is gone. It, it, it really is true. This isn't just something you say to make people feel better. I, I very seldom do that, just say something to make people feel better. But the truth should help us to feel better. Sometimes the truth is hard, but it makes us really gives us comfort. Your loved one being, if they're in Christ, in Christ, and they're separated from you by death, it isn't that they've disappeared. They feel gone. But it's no different than them taking a trip across the United States or something before we had telephones and airplanes and things like that. Those people's relatives back in Boston, uh, you know, they were, what about them? Well, they're, they're, they're somewhere out west. You just can't communicate with them. Yes, it's true. And you don't like it. You can't communicate with those who pass to the other side. But that doesn't mean they're not there anymore. It doesn't mean they don't exist anymore. The Bible teaches very clearly they still do exist. And they're in the care of Jesus Christ. But you just can't communicate with them. So he's telling these these men here at the Last Supper, yes, I'm going away. But it won't be like I'm completely gone, disappeared, never to see you again, never to give you any comfort. Nevertheless, I tell you, even though you're sorry about this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do depart, I will send him to you. Now, I would say to people what Paul says to those who've lost loved ones among us. Paul says very clearly that you have to understand something. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You want your relative to be in heaven with Christ? Well, the flesh and blood can't get there. They have to die first and become not flesh and blood anymore. So that's the process. Jesus says, I can't send the Holy Spirit, which is really to your advantage until I go away. That's part of what has to happen. How'd that happen? Well, that was the ascension, you see. And so you see this work of the church being done. And Paul, and he says then, uh, hang on, I got the same one twice there. And being assembled in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, going back to that, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What promise was that? Well, that he would send the Holy Spirit, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what, what this means to you and me is this. When he sent it back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And what that meant is they began to preach and teach the Word of God, how to be saved, how to live, how to come to Christ. And that was eventually written down in what we call the Bible. Well, we have the Bible, the word, the words that I can speak to you, they don't come from God directly to me. They come through God speaking through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who wrote these things down. And then I can tell them to you and you can read them for yourself. None of that could happen unless Christ went back to heaven first. That's what he's saying. here. So it is to our advantage that Christ ascended into the heavens. Because eventually we get the word of God. We don't worship the word of God as if it's a God itself. But we certainly don't diminish the word of God. In any way, that's how we know what to believe and that any of these things happen altogether or at any event. And then we have this in Romans 8. I know we got to stop, but let me, let me just finish with this. He says in a general way, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We talked about this verse a couple weeks ago. What this is saying is, and you have been here if you're a thoughtful person, Christian, You don't even know what to pray for. You don't even know how to say what you want to say. You don't even know what sometimes what you really want. 
Life is complex. Our thoughts are complex. And things that happen are complex. He says God understands that. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit and why Jesus Christ is there at the right, his right hand. And so the Holy Spirit hears what we're saying. Here's our prayers that we don't even know how to pray the right thing sometimes. And he, the, whole, the Spirit makes intercession for us through Christ with groanings which cannot be uttered. We can't say what the Holy Spirit can say to God. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That's Jesus Christ sitting at God's right hand. He makes intercession for us because he's heard what the Spirit has said. The Spirit has interpreted our thoughts our heart knows what we really want, what we really need, tells Jesus Christ that, and then God knows. Now, I don't know how to explain that whole process. This is what says happens here. And you know, people want to feel something when that happens. They think they're going to feel something. This doesn't say anything at all about you even knowing this was going on, except it told you here. I believe this because I have faith in what Paul said was true here. Not because I can feel something in my heart when this happens, because I can't, and you can't either. And so then, we do know all things, he says in that same chapter, we're together for good to those who love the Lord. Who is it, verse 34? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This whole chapter ends with the idea that Christ ascended to the right hand of God and now makes intercession for us. Well, we've got too many other scriptures. We're going to stop this morning. Got some other things we want to say, but our time is far gone. I told too many, um, I started to say ridiculous stories. We'll have to, we'll see. Maybe they work. But I appreciate you listening to these things. I want you to have a better understanding of, of the complexity of biblical doctrine, what it means, and why it's important that we understand all the scripture teaching about Jesus Christ. So many misconceptions about what happens in life and death and why things are like they are. And it could be answered by simply trying to ferret out of the Bible what is being said. We're going to close our service now with an invitation for you to obey the gospel of Christ. He's going to, we're going to sing number 771. Will you come? And this is an opportunity after you've heard the word of God, maybe thought about these things, maybe this morning you've been praying, things are troubling you, you want to live right before God, you want to do what's right. Well, two things. Number one, if you're not a Christian, you've never been baptized for the mission, remission of your sins, you ought to do that. And if you're convinced that you should, if that's what you believe is right to do based on your belief in Christ, then come to the front here. We can do that this morning. You don't have to wait till some other time. This is a time you can be baptized in Christ and be cleansed and be forgiven of your sins, become a Christian. Maybe you already are a Christian, but you failed or you feel that you're weak and you need prayer. We'll pray with you this morning. God will forgive. We'll, we'll express those thoughts to God. He'll forgive. Let your brothers and sisters help you. And if you want to do that, you come right down to the front row here as we stand and say, let's stand.